The past several months we've been uh, going through the book of Exodus. Today we're going to uh, finish our study of the book. So we'll be in Exodus 35 through 40 today. You can go ahead and turn there, <clears throat> excuse me, in your Bibles. As you're turning there, I, I, I want us just to remember some of the highlights of the story of the book of Exodus that has brought us to where we are today. You might remember that it opened with Israel and slavery to Egypt. They had been there, Exodus 12 tells us, they had been there for 430 years when God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. You might remember the story. Uh, Moses was walking uh, along, minding his own business. He sees this uh, bush that's on fire and he thinks that's a strange thing because although the bush was on fire, it wasn't being consumed. So, so Usually, we all know, when something's on fire, it, it perishes, but this bush was not being consumed. So Moses thought, you know, that's interesting. I'm going to go look at that. So he goes over there, and what he finds out is that the reason the bush is not being consumed is that the fire that he sees is not a natural fire. It's a supernatural fire. It's a, a holy fire because God himself is standing in the midst of that bush. The, the, Exodus calls him... Uh, the angel of the Lord, and you might remember that uh, the angel of the Lord is pre-incarnate Jesus. That, that was the word before the word became flesh, standing in the midst of the bush, talking to Moses. And he told Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. So Moses takes off his shoes, and then God begins to tell him what he's going to use him for, and he commissions him to be the deliverer of Israel. So he goes back along with Aaron and for the next 12 chapters, they do many signs for the Israelites, for the Egyptians, and takes 10 plagues, a lot of devastation, a lot of death. And Pharaoh finally relents and says, y'all, you, you all can go. I don't know that he said y'all. Um, he, he says, you can go. And so scripture tells us that Israel leaves Egypt and the angel of the Lord led them by cloud by day and by a pillar of fire. It's going to be that same supernatural holy fire, a pillar of fire by night. But they took a strange course. They didn't just leave Egypt the way that Pharaoh would have expected. They hung around the borders of Egypt for a while and then eventually camped facing the Red Sea, at which point Pharaoh concludes they're confused, they're lost, they don't know where they are. I want my slaves back. Let's get them. And so he takes his military and they pursue Israel. And you might remember Israel begins to panic, but God uh, parts the Red Sea, makes the ground dry so that the Israelites can walk across. And further it says that the angel of the Lord moves from, behind, from in front of Israel to behind Israel, as does the cloud and the pillar of fire, to prevent the Egyptian army from overtaking them. So God prevents the Egyptian army from overtaking them while Israel crosses the entire Red Sea. It would have taken at least a day. And then once they got there, God allowed the Egyptians to pursue. And then once the Egyptians were in the middle of the Red Sea, He judged them. He allowed uh, the Red Sea to collapse on Pharaoh and on his military. The entire Egyptian army, along with their uh, leader, perished at the Red Sea. Following that, we see a big song 
in, in Exodus. The, the Israelites are so happy, so excited. They have finally, and, and for all time, they're rid of that military. That military will not bother them again. And then God leads them through the wilderness, and, and He leads them, continuing to lead them by a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, but then he feeds them every day with manna. He, he gives them water miraculously. He takes bitter water and makes it uh, clean water for them to drink. He even destroys enemies, enemy militaries that come against them. God was with his people as he led them. And he led them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, we're in Exodus 19 now. And at, at Mount Sinai, God tells Moses to speak on behalf of him to the people. And this is where God's covenant relationship with Israel was going to begin. He says, tell the people that I will be their God and they will be my people if they will, essentially, if they will keep my commandments. And Exodus 19.8 says that all of Israel with one heart, one mind, one voice agreed. And so they, they had covenanted in that moment with Yahweh, with their God, God uh, Yahweh would be their God and they would be His people. But they had agreed to obey Him, but at that point they didn't have His law. And so God, after they agreed, He, he says, Moses, come up Mount Sinai. I will come down. I will meet you. I will give you the law for them to follow. And so in the following chapters at Mount Sinai, um, we see God explaining to Moses what His law is going to be. And and Exodus 19.18 gives us a picture of what, what it would have looked like to Moses and the Israelites. It says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. There's that fire again. The smoke of it went up like, a, like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And while Moses was up there receiving the law from the Lord... God told him how he wanted the people to worship him. He told them how they were to build and design the tabernacle, how they were to build and design what would become the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and finally, he told them to leave and go to the place he had promised them, what, what we call the promised land. And that brings us today, to today's text, Exodus 35 through 40. We're going to continue considering it kind of by survey, just because it is, it's a lot of text and there are a lot of details in it. But I hope to give us kind of an idea of what's in each chapter, and, and hopefully you'll go back and kind of read it and, and consider it alongside of some of our points of application today. But in Exodus 35, we see that the Israelites began the construction of the tabernacle. It says that all of the people, verses uh, 24 and 25, all of the people brought whatever materials they had, whatever they could contribute, they brought to the tabernacle. And they were going to give it to them. Anyone who had a knowledge that could be used or skills that could be used uh, to build this tabernacle, they, were going, they, they came and, and they used those. Everyone in Israel used everything they had to build this tabernacle. Why? Well, a tabernacle is just it's a, a fancy theological word for it, the place that God is going to dwell. It's going to be God's dwelling place among His people. And so they all poured their hearts and souls and all of their material possessions into this to build the tabernacle exactly, and this is important, exactly the way that God 
commissioned Moses to build it while on Mount, while on Mount Sinai. In fact, Exodus 36, 1 and 2 says that God had to give some of the people special knowledge, special skills, so that they could do what he had called them to do. So they didn't even possess all of the skills that would be necessary to build the tabernacle according to the way that that Moses received on Mount Sinai. God had to equip them in a special way to make them able to do that. God didn't call them to do something that he wasn't going to equip them to do. And what we're going to see later on in in this sermon is that God doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't equip us to do. He might call us to some big things, and he does. But if he calls us to something, anything, he's going to equip us to do it. By his spirit, he'll, he'll equip us. Chapter 37 is filled with details about the tabernacle and, and about the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sorry. The Ark of the Covenant is very detailed. We're going to look at uh, 37 verses 8 and 9. You can look there. And this is just describing the, the mercy seat and the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant, just so you see the level of detail that's throughout this chapter. It's, and Moses made is, is what, who it's referring to. And Moses made one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. On one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their faces to one another, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. So the cherubim would have been on both sides with their wings spread out over the Ark of the Covenant, facing one another, but looking down. The whole chapter is filled with details like that. And then chapter 8 is very similar in in the way that it describes the courtyard of the tabernacle. It describes the north, south, east, and west sides of the tabernacle. Just just to see a snapshot of that, let's look at Exodus 38, 10, and 11. There are 20 pillars. It's talking about the south side right now. There are 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side, there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The chapter goes on and on describing the courtyard in detail, all sides of it. And I wonder, have, have you ever wondered, why is all of this detail provided? Why did it have to be so meticulous? Why was it so detailed? Why did it need to be so exact and elaborate? If if you read it, it was extremely elaborate. Well, I I think it's twofold. One, as we discussed earlier, this is where the God of the universe, the one who made heaven and earth, was going to dwell among his people. So it needed to reflect that. Its, Its elegance, its design needed to reflect that God dwelt here. But more than that, Exodus 25 verse 40 tells us that God commissioned Moses to build the tabernacle in direct accordance with what he showed Moses on the mountain. Hebrews 8 gives us a little bit more insight into it. It says that the earthly tabernacle 
was built as a copy of heavenly things. So I don't know how this works exactly or, or w- whether it was a vision, whether God actually took Moses somewhere. Somehow, while he was on Mount Sinai, God allowed Moses to see his heavenly dwelling place. Somehow. And so what Moses was doing was he was bringing the knowledge that God showed him of heavenly things to make as, as exact of an earthly copy as he could possibly make to be the tabernacle within Israel. So he was making a copy of the heavenly tabernacle, so to speak, here on earth among God's people. And so all of the details of the 92 verses that detail how the tabernacle was to be built, they were purposeful, they were exact, they were... They were They were not arbitrary. The tabernacle was going to be God's dwelling place. And so then Exodus 39 goes into similar detail, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it here right this moment. We will in a few few minutes. But Exodus 39 describes the priestly garments, an entire chapter just dedicated to describing how the priests were to dress. And filling, uh, finishing the description of how they were to dress is Exodus 39, uh, 30 and 31. You can look there if you'd like, or the words will be on the screen. It's describing a crown that the priests would wear. And they made a plate of the holy crown, so it would have been right here where you would see them when they walk up to you. They made a plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied it to a cord of blue to fasten it onto the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. After that, we get to Exodus 40, the last chapter in Exodus. Uh, The first part of it talks about the consecration of Aaron and his sons to be uh, Levitical priests, the priests of Israel. And Exodus 40.20 says that Moses placed the Ten Commandments, which it refers to as the testimony, into the Ark. So have you ever wondered why the Ark of the Covenant is called the Ark of the Covenant? This is why. Before this moment, it was just the Ark. But it refers to the covenant that God made with the people. We just talked about when God was at Mount Sinai and he spoke through Moses in uh, Exodus 19 and said, if you will do all that I command you, you will be my people and I will be your God. The people agreed. At that point, they have covenanted with God. And then God gave them his law. And so Moses places here in, in Exodus 40, 20, he places the law, the holy covenant of God, into the ark that's in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. And after that, uh, verse 33 says that Moses finished the work. And Exodus concludes with verses 34 through 38 that we're going to read together. And then we'll consider what all of this has to say to us uh, today as we look at our lives and the way that we relate to this same Most High God. Exodus 40, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle, or enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
throughout all their journeys, whether the cloud was taken up from over, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And that concludes the book of Exodus. So we've considered the last five chapters for the first time this morning. So what we're going to do for the remainder of our time is we're going to consider two things, two takeaways for us uh, from those five chapters. Then I want to consider a third takeaway just from kind of a mile-high view of Exodus. So our first takeaway from today's chapters is simply that God is holy. And that is the understatement of the year, but that's the, the best way that I can, I can say it. God is holy. Where he was going to dwell among his people communicated a lot about his holiness. The, the rules and the regulations that he gave the priests and, and the people for their worship communicated so much about his holiness. They were not to approach him with apathy. They were not to come to God in any type of lackadaisical manner. They were, they were supposed to come to him with an appropriate sense of awe and wonder and even the right kind of fear. Think about it. When they came to Mount Sinai, God said, don't touch the mountain, don't come near to the mountain or you will surely die. There was an element of fear that even his people had because they realized how holy God is. And I think we often lack that appropriate fear and awe and wonder in our own lives. And I think it manifests itself in several ways. So I want us to consider just three ways that maybe the lack of awe and wonder and fear of God can manifest itself in our lives. The first way is simply the lack of desire that we might sometimes have to come to church. Think about it. If, if Jesus is who he said he is and, and, and who we believe him to be, which is the same God who delivered Israel from Egypt, and if he promised us that wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be with them also. And we believe those words to be true. There should be no place that we desire to come more than here, to worship, to gather where we know his presence will be. This same God who, who brought fire down to consume Mount Sinai whenever he came to meet with Moses, he meets with us here. And I'm talking to myself whenever I say, I don't think about that enough. I don't, I don't consider how much of an honor and a privilege it is to get to come to this place with God's people where he has promised to meet us. I lack awe and wonder. And I think that Others of you, I'm sure, I hope, <laughs> share that. We, we need to be intentional about rekindling the fire in our hearts to, to remind ourselves of how majestic, how holy God is. 
Another area that I think we see a lack is in, in that appropriate fear of God. We remember God saying to the Israelites what I just said, don't, don't touch this mountain that I'm on. If you do, you'll die. Similarly, Moses wasn't allowed to go back into the Holy of Holies. If he would have, he would have died. But we have, we have warnings to us about the way that we approach communion. That if I, I speak for myself, sometimes again, I don't take seriously. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to take communion in a worthy manner. Meaning, and it says specifically, judge yourselves so that you won't be judged. It says because, talking to the Corinthians, because some of you are taking communion in an unworthy manner, meaning you're not, you're not judging yourself, you're not repenting of sins, you're, you're just bringing all of your sins to the, to the communion table and, and in no way approaching God the way He wants us to approach Him. Paul says some of you are sick and some of you have died. And here at Harvest, we do this every single Sunday. We take communion every Sunday because... Some, we believe it to be important. Scripture teaches it to be very important. But the risk we run with that is turning it into a ritual, Turn it into, turning it into something that we do mindlessly. And I'm, I'm, again, speaking to myself whenever I say, I need to be more mindful of the way that I approach the table. Because if I do it in just a, a lackadaisical way, I'm, I'm displaying that I lack the appropriate fear of God. And the last way that we'll think about um, how this lack of, of awe and wonder and, and fear of God manifests in our lives is it's in the way that we live. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that our spiritual act of worship, so the way that God desires us to worship Him more than any way else, is a, a life lived in sacrifice, a life of sacrifice. And what that looks like is a life that consciously approaches daily interactions and and daily chores and moral choices with the realization that I need to die to myself so that I can live to Christ. The the type of worship that God desires from us is a, a life of sacrifice where we kill our desires so that we can live for His, so that our lives can bring Him glory instead of bringing us glory. And when we forget that God is holy, we don't approach every day like that. We don't approach every interaction like that. We don't approach every moral choice realizing that this is an opportunity to to sacrifice and worship this most holy God. And the reason we fail to remember God's holiness is oftentimes because we forget the second takeaway for today which is that we are all called to be priests. I'm called to be a priest, and you're called to be a priest. Everyone is called to be a priest. And we're going to see that in 1 Peter 2.9 in just a moment. But what I want us to think about is the way that the priests in Israel were supposed to be dressed. Think about that in an entire chapter, 43 verses, just about how the priests were to dress. Why? Because God had chosen them to be the mediators and, and the intercessors between Him and His people. They were called not only to be set apart, but to appear set apart. 
So you wouldn't have looked at a priest in Israel and thought that he was just a normal person. You would have looked at a priest in Israel and you would have known this is a priest. Just a cursory glance would have told you that. And then 1 Peter 2.9 speaks to us as Christians and says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. What I want to point out there is you are a chosen people, a chosen people to be priests of God Most High, and there's not a period there. It wasn't just so that you can be priests. It says that we were chosen as priests of God so that we would proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so I ask, how often are you, are you or am I, fulfilling our calling as priests? How does our lives look any different from the lives of the people who live around us? If people looked at the priests in Israel, they would have seen someone dressed totally different who did not fit in because they were priests. Do people who look at our lives know that we're priests of the Most High God sent to proclaim His majesty to everyone around us? Or could we be mistaken for just people who are nice? People who go to church. Do you ever think about that? How, how do we look to the people around us? What is different about our lives from that of, say, the moral atheist? Do we take our callings as priests seriously? What should look differently about our lives is that we are not only proclaiming the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into light, but also the fact that we're living as ambassadors of Christ. We're, we're living for His kingdom and not ours. And if we're doing that on a regular basis, that's going to be evident to everybody. Or we could just be nice people who nobody realizes we're priests because we're not dressed differently. We don't stick out. The last thing I want us to consider today is, is kind of from more of the mile-high view of Exodus. Uh, you may have noticed as I recounted some of the high points of Exodus and as we've even read the, the conclusion of Exodus, the reoccurring... Um, theme of fire, this holy fire that accompanied the angel of the Lord and, and God when he would come down. Some of the bullet points was uh, the fiery bush with Moses. The fire led alongside the angel of the Lord, led the Israelites through the wilderness. It went behind Israel when the angel of the Lord went behind Israel as they crossed to the Red Sea. It covered Mount Sinai when God came down to meet Moses and it was in the tabernacle once the tabernacle was complete. Where God's presence was, holy fire accompanied. And it took me longer than, longer than I'd like to admit, or at least admit to you all, to realize that that fire didn't only appear here in Exodus and it wasn't relegated only to the Old Testament it was in the New Testament as well. You might remember the story of Pentecost, right? I'm going to read Acts 2, 1 through 4. If you're quick, you can turn there, but it'll be on the screens as well. 
It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, they being the, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus. He had already ascended into heaven at this point. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit was poured out for the first time ever to Christians, and the same holy fire that we see throughout Exodus appeared in tongues of fire above each one of them. And to us, that seems novel, it seems cool, but to the ancient Israelites, to the Jews, they would have known exactly what that means. That means that God's presence is here. God's presence is in each one of us. I think there's a lot that we can take away just considering what that means because that same reality is for each one of us. But what I want us to think about is, have you ever considered why they were all huddled together in that room? Praying, certainly, for the helper who was promised to them. Have you ever considered why they were there? Luke tells us, Luke wrote Acts, so we'll look at Luke's gospel that he would have written before the book of Acts. If you're quick, you can turn to Luke 24. We're going to look at his account of the Great Commission. Luke 24, we'll start in verse 46 and read through verse 49. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. That's the Great Commission right there. That the repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city. Meaning, don't begin to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Don't begin to participate in the, in the Great Commission until you're clothed with power from on high. So the apostles that day on the day of Pentecost, they were huddled in a room together because they were waiting on the helper to arrive because they had a task to take care of. They had, Jesus had given them the Great Commission, but they knew they weren't supposed to act on it until the Holy Spirit came because you see, Jesus knew, just like God knew He was giving the Israelites in Exodus something uh, to do that, that they weren't equipped to do in building the tabernacle, and so He equipped them for it. Jesus knew that He was calling the apostles and He was calling those of us who would follow them to do something that we're not equipped to do so he said, I'm going to send a helper who's going to equip you, who's going to make you able to do this. And so on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were all huddled up together. They were praying, God, send your help. And he did. And what was the first thing they began to do? They began to speak in tongues that would have ministered to the hearts and to the minds of, of people from various countries, various nations in the city. They were equipped automatically to begin participating in the Great Commission. And Scripture tells us that they continued doing that in Jerusalem and then it spread to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We wouldn't be here today as Christians without 
the apostles beginning the spirit-filled work of the Great Commission and people following in their footsteps. That's the whole reason that we're able to sit here today worshiping the one true God is because the Holy Spirit has empowered his people to take part in the Great Commission. God chose the apostles to be his priests, to proclaim his excellencies to the world around them, to, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called them out of light and out of darkness and into his marvelous light, to, to proclaim the repentance and forgiveness of sins to the entire world. And then he equipped them to do that. And the same thing is true for you and for me. But what I want us to think about is that was the reason the Holy Spirit was given. The reason that the Holy Spirit was given was to help us with that task. And so that's why Jesus said, wait. And when he comes, go. We've all received that same spirit, but I ask, have we all taken the time to ask ourselves, how am I living according to my priestly calling? How am I carrying out the Great Commission here in my own community? Am I proclaiming the excellencies of the one who has called me out of darkness and into light? Am I proclaiming the, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins? If I'm not, I'm not doing the very thing that God gave me His Spirit to enable me to do. Of greater consequence is the question, when's the last time you asked yourself, what does God want from me in regard to taking this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins and His excellencies to people who live in areas of the world where they were literally <laughs> they'll be born, live an entire life, and die never hearing the message. Never meeting one Christian who can tell them the message. What am I doing? God, what would you have me to do? You've given me your spirit. What's my role? When's the last time you asked yourself that? We all have a role, and it's not all to go live there. It's not all, it's not all going to look the same, but we all have a role in participating in the Great Commission. And even if we close our eyes and assume there's nothing we can do for those people, there are our responsibilities. And, and to be clear, the people that I'm talking about who live in those areas of the world, who will be born, live an entire life, die, never meet a Christian, it's not a small number of people. I'm talking about 40% of the world's population today. Three billion people, souls, created in the image of God, have never heard that He loves them, that he desires a relationship with him, have never heard the message that he left his heavenly throne room so that they could spend eternity with him. 40% of the world, 3 billion souls. So do we ask God how he wants us to participate in that, in that mission, to see them reached with the gospel, to see them respond to our message about His excellencies. 
And maybe a greater question is, if, if we are asking that question, are we open to hearing an answer that we, we don't want to hear? God doesn't usually respect our plans. He calls us to do things that maybe we don't plan for ourselves. And if He calls you to do something that you don't have in your plans for yourself or for the plans of your family, are you willing to say yes? I don't want to stand before God and have to give an an account of the way that I lived my life and knowing that He cared so much about the way that the priest dressed And have to tell him why I thought I could live an entire life giving so little thought to my priestly calling. I certainly don't want to stand before him and have to give an account of why I spent so little time living at the same time as three billion other souls and I didn't even ask him how he wanted to use me to reach them with a message of repentance and forgiveness even though he gave me every tool that I would need. The message of Exodus is that God saved his people and that he set set them apart for himself. And Genesis 12 tells us that God did that for the sake of the entire world. God would bring the Messiah through Israel. And so, in a sense, when we see the lengths to which God went to save his people in Exodus, we're seeing the lengths to which God went to save the world. Because it was through this people that he would bring the Messiah. Exodus tells us a type of testimony for Israel. They were saved from Egypt, from darkness, and they were covenanted to God, to the Most High God who loved them and came down and delivered them. But that wasn't the end of their story. God God saved them and covenanted with them so that they would bring about, they would be a priestly nation for one thing, but then they would bring the Messiah who would be the blessing to all the nations. And in the same, in the same way, we can look at our testimony and, and see kind of a, a parallel. Our testimonies that we look back on, the moment when God saved us, when we put our faith in Jesus, that wasn't the whole story for us. That was supposed to be the beginning of our story. And after that moment, it's supposed to be a story of a life lived proclaiming the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that the world will be blessed. God didn't save Israel for Israel's sake and God didn't save us for our sake. God saved Israel for the world's sake and God saved us for the world's sake. So I want to close with this question. Are we spending our lives fulfilling the priestly calling that God has given us? He has called us out of darkness and into light and He wants us to proclaim those excellencies, proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins to everyone around us and to everyone around the globe. Are we spending our lives to that end? We all need to wrestle with this question because there's still time for us to course correct where we need to course correct. And and we can begin, even if we haven't been, we can drive a stake in the ground today and we can say from now on I'm reorienting my life to live as a priest on mission, as an ambassador of Christ on mission 
proclaim his excellencies, to see his kingdom furthered so that we don't have to shrink back in shame whenever we give account of the way that we lived and the way that we stewarded the gift of the Holy Spirit that we received. We've been called to be priests of God Most High. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Father God, you are so, so gracious and you're so kind to allow us to be uh, your people. People, all of us, God, we are, we are flawed, we are, we are sinful, we are not worthy at all to be called your priests. And yet you have chosen us, you have redeemed us, you have sanctified us, you have given us the help of your Holy Spirit, God, you have... Um, given us everything we need to live a life of holiness, to live a life of sacrifice, a life that is um, worthy of the calling that we have received. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, that you would help, help us take every thought captive. God, help us to orient our thoughts, our lives, our minds in a way that would further your kingdom, God, in a way that would bless the nations around us, starting with our community, but all the way out to the nations where... God, maybe we've never been, maybe we've never thought about it. God, I pray that you would give us a burden, a heart to pray and ask you regularly, God, what do you want to do with my life? How do you want to use me to proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins to those who have never heard it? God, to proclaim the message of salvation, the only way to God people who you love, to people who are made in your image. God, how do you want to use us? God, I pray that even in this moment, you would be creating fresh burdens in people's hearts. And God, I pray that you would allow us to see the fruit of the labor that you're uh, doing among the nations, among our communities. God, I pray that you would use us, um, God, to bring your kingdom. We love you and we thank you and we pray that you would um, help us to think your thoughts, help us to love the people you love, help us to care about the things you care about, help us to be ambassadors of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.